So we're going to tackle two chapters again. They get repetitive. If you've read the book of Acts, the end of it, from really 22 through 28, a little bit of change where it's narrative about him traveling, Paul, but it's a lot of re- repetition. So uh, we'll, we'll hit two. Um, here's one thing to consider. Who here likes to wait? When you have to go to the DMV, you're like, man, praise God, today I get to go to the DMV. Probably nobody. I'm a terrible waiter because the moment like I stop and sit down and I don't have something to do, my mind instantly just starts to wander. And I kind of actually forget where I'm at. So that can get me in trouble. So Saturday, I'm at the fair. One of my daughters is auctioning off her pig. And so I'm sitting in the stands, you know, all around and I'm not doing anything. So my mind begins to wander. And this pig was being sold and it was up to $14 a pound. And the, the auctioneer's like, 14, who's gonna be 14? And I see this guy, this young man, and I'm very demonstrative with my hands. I've always been that way. Yes, yeah, you got it. 14 bucks a pound. I'm like, hey, $14 a pound right here. I'm like, what? It was a 265 pound pig at 14 bucks a pound. And I'm decent at math. I'm like, that's $3,710. Ha! And then I'm thinking, no problem. Someone will bid it up. 10 seconds goes by. 14, who's going to be 15, 15, 14, 14. I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm going to buy a pig for $3,700. I'm going to have to sell Myron. I know he's small. How much would you give me for him, right? Like, ah! So finally, someone's like, $15 a pig. I'm like, thank you. And we've got 16 over here. <laughs> no, not really. That didn't happen. I literally had to sit on my hands. My wife turned, he's like, do not. Like, I couldn't even like head nod at somebody when they walked by. I'd be just like, hello. <laughs> I'm not good at waiting. Gets me in trouble. Paul is going to be on pause here. His life that has been real rapid. Like he just goes places, goes, does not stop. Like for four years now, he's stuck. Ultimate pause. He's cut off from the church. He's cut off from his mission and what he feels God has called him to do. Cut off from freedom. He's being accused of being a really bad dude, like Genghis Khan style. So what does he do? Well, we're gonna find that out in these last four chapters. Five. Chapter 24, verse one. So if you don't know, catching you up, Paul goes to Jerusalem, probably shouldn't have, is in the temple, um, probably shouldn't have been there. Riot starts because of Paul. Uh, They grab him, they wanna kill him. A guy named Claudius Lysias comes down, saves him, uh, finds out he's a Roman citizen. He's like a hot potato. So Claudius Lysias is like, I just want to get rid of him. So now he takes him to this guy named Felix that was in this town called Caesarea, which was really the, the Roman capital of the area. Jerusalem was the, the Israel capital, capital. Caesarea was the Roman capital. So now he's in Caesarea and he's now on trial. Chapter 24, verse one. And after five days, the high priest Ananias, he's not a good dude, came down with some elders and a spokesman, or literally it's the only time attorney is used in the Greek, an attorney, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, 
since through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Felix is the governor, he's the Roman governor, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So here's what happens. There's now a trial. Paul is hated so much. They hire like the best attorney around, Michael Cohen. (laughs) A guy named Tertullus. And so he just begins with this flattery. Oh, you've given us so much peace and prosperity and we love you so much. His case is essentially cow manure. That's what it is. It's not at all true. The Jews hated Felix. Felix was known to take bribes. He was known to stir up riots so he could go into that area. And he, 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 he will be removed in a short while from this because of a riot he causes where all these people die and Rome just gets sick of it and they call him home. They hated him, but he just lays it on thick. And I think at some point, Felix is just like, come on. So he's like, okay, let me get to my point. And he lays out this case. This is his case. Number one, this guy's a plague and he causes riots. Essentially what Felix does all the time, this guy is doing the same thing. Now, Rome had a zero tolerance for anybody other than themselves starting riots. So if they can make this one stick, Paul will be killed. And they know that. This is their big, this is their go-to. So they call him a plague. I like that metaphor. Like a plague, what's more feared or evil than a plague? Like I Am Legend, who's seen that movie, right? Based on a something, a pretty much a possible real life scenario. Some disease gets out of control wipes out the entire world's population, except, or turns them into zombies or something. Like, that's a great fear. Uh, Antibacteria-resistant MRSA or Ebola, like giant fear. That's for us today when we have a pretty good healthcare system. Reverse the clock 2,000 years, plagues devastated, just devastated. They they were the fear. Like, he's he's not a natural disaster, he's a plague. Natural disasters actually play a positive role I don't know if you know this, like a hurricane. Hurricanes are needed. What they do is they move the energy from the equator north. And it's like a way to balance out the earth. They're actually a very necessary part of what balances out our earth. Without them, we'd have real big problems. But a plague, nothing good. Floods are good, right? They're like flushing the toilet on a river. Clears it out, gets rid of dead wood and junk and makes them flow correctly, removes or moves topsoil out. Like they're really important. Plague's nothing good. So they're saying, this guy is a plague. He's as bad as they get because he's starting these riots and people are dying, number one. Number two, he's part of this sect of the Nazarenes. Now he doesn't call him a Christian. This guy's really good with words because 
Nazareth, the region, was a known region. So Felix, who's been here probably at this point for seven years or five years probably, he knows Nazareth. It'd be like saying he's from the, the sect of Skid Row. Like it's the drug-infested, rebellious, troubled area. He's from that area. Now, why would he be called the sect of the Nazarenes? Jesus, right, was from Nazareth, which is a giant prophetic thing. So you read Isaiah, you read Ezekiel, especially Isaiah and Zechariah. They say Messiah will be a Nazarite, which is a Hebrew word that simply means branch. It's this whole idea of the line of David being cut down, which happened when Babylon came, the kings were gone. But out of Babylon, out of this root all of a sudden, or out of the stump, I should say, it's, it's Isaiah chapter 11. Out of this stump comes a little, little branch. And that is Messiah, that his root, he comes from the stock of Israel and that is, or from David. And that is throughout the prophets constantly talked about. It just means this, he's the branch man. That's really what it is. Or he's the stick man. And so Jesus comes from Nazareth, which would literally be saying Jesus is from the sticks, which is very fascinating to me. <laughs> right? He, it's the uneducated, it's the troubled region. So they're saying this about Jesus. They're saying this about Paul. Listen, he, he's, he's a plague and he's from a really bad spot. Nazareth, the terrible, troubled spot. And then thirdly, he profaned the temple. Now this is just a bold-faced lie. Can you imagine that? A lie in a courtroom. <laughs> Who'd have thought of something like this? They're just trying to add it on, you know? And then, then this guy just ends by saying, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out all this stuff. How do you examine a person 2,000 years ago? Do you ask him questions? Mm -mm. You beat the snot out of them until they started confessing. That's what you did. So what Tertullius is really saying is, I don't have any evidence I don't have any witnesses. I really have nothing. But if you beat the snot out of him, maybe you'll find something. That's the entire case. Pretty weak, right? So now Paul stands up. He's like, okay. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, 
or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Normally it's a bad idea for you to represent yourself in court. An attorney would have said, you call them a plague, hold on. Objection, your honor, right? But Paul does a really good job. He starts out, no flattery. He doesn't say all this, these lies about Felix. He just says, hey, I'm glad to talk to you because you've been a governor a long time. I love that. It's just honest, right? We have a saying in our house. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. Don't lie with flattery and don't say anything negative, right? If you thought I preached a terrible message, but you feel like you have to say something to me, you can just say, Matt, you preached today, okay? Which is honest. <laughs> you're not lying, you're not saying anything you shouldn't say, right? That's what you should do. And, and Paul makes that line right. And then he answers the three objections. Number one, I didn't cause a riot. Listen, I didn't have time. I've been in jail for a couple of days. I've been down here for five days. I was only in Jerusalem for six days. It, it's not even possible for me to have done that. And where are the witnesses? I actually came to bless Jerusalem. I brought money because they're in a famine. And there's economic trouble right now. I came and took an offering. I was here not to cause riots, but to bless. I didn't profane the temple, right? Where are the witnesses? No way. One thing that he has agreed to is this. I am part of this sect. And then he just goes, theology. He says, verse 14, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything in the law, the Torah, and the prophets. I'm worshiping the same God these guys worship. I just know his name. His name is Jesus. And I derive this theology from the Old Testament, the same scriptures that they are using. So yes, I'm guilty of that one thing. And my hope, just like these guys, is the resurrection. And he says something fascinating. He says, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I don't know how in tune you are to certain debates in Christianity, but there's a big one right now on hell. And there are three main ways the church historically has seen what we call hell. They are number one, eternal conscious torment. Now, when you think about eternal conscious torment, most of our ideas come from Dante and not from scripture. So it's very important when you think about the afterlife for somebody that does not believe, the unjust, to not get your direction from Dante, but to really carefully examine scriptures on what that will look like. And for me, the key text is 2 Thessalonians chapter one, which talks about it, eternal separation from God. I don't think God's torturing people. I think God is saying, no. Uh, number two is what's called annihilationism. So if you were paying attention to the 2016 election, there's this guy named Ben Carson, remember him? Ben Carson was asked on, he was at one point, he was a leading dude. He was, getting, he was number one, right? I think it was 2000, end of 2014. Um, and he was on Katie Couric and he was asked about his faith and he was asked about hell. 
And because of Seventh-day Adventists, they believe in annihilationism, he gave the annihilation answer. I believe in a loving God. He's not gonna torture people. It's if you don't believe in God, you cease to exist. That's annihilationism. So what they say is this. They say that when you believe in Jesus, you are given life. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not given life. And when you die, you're just annihilated. You cease to exist. And they have their ways for it. You can study that if you want to. Seventh-day Adventists are annihilationists. So that's what he said. This is a troubling text for that point because it says, no, both the just and the unjust are gonna be resurrected. So they have to work through this. And then the third one, which is mostly considered heresy, is what's called universalism. Universalism says this, that everyone will be saved. Now, I'd love to be a universalist, Man, that's, I, am, I am a wishful universalist, but I don't think it's real because there are some people that would be miserable in heaven. So a universalist has to say this, Hitler will be in heaven with the 6 million Jews that he killed. Would Hitler love heaven then? Or to be like, this is miserable. I hate these people. They're here too? Yes, they are. So I think there's things that you have to just say, I don't know if that practically works. For some people, heaven would be hell to be around people that they hate so much, that they're so ingrained in and hate. So those are three big ones. This is one that you have to work through if you decide you're an annihilationist. It's a very tough one to work through. And I wrestle with these all the time because I wanna be a universalist, but I know in reality, some people are gonna refuse Jesus and they would be miserable in heaven. And for them, they will be separated, I believe, for 2 Thessalonians chapter one verse nine from God's presence. And that's where they're happiest. I don't wanna be around God. I wanna love God. I wanna be as far away from him as possible. So gotta work through that. So here, Paul says, this is the reason why I'm here. It's about the resurrection. And so he, every single time Paul preaches, he actually ends on the resurrection. Every time he shares, every time he's in court, what does Paul always get to? Yeah. Do you know people like that? Maybe it's not on Jesus, but it's some, like, you know, if you talk to this person, at some point, they're gonna get to this topic. I had a guy in college. He was my roommate, my junior year, Eric Williams. And we were roommates our sophomore year and junior year. Between my sophomore year and my junior year, he became vegan. And like, it was, it was, it was every time I'm eating like a hamburger or like when I could really had a little bit of money and buy a steak, he'd be like, you're going to eat that? I'm like, absolutely. I'm going to eat this. Oh man. And he'd be like eating tofu, which from my background, my church background to me, tofu was like satanic. I still kind of tend towards it. I'm like, I don't know, man, you eat that. I think you're in liege with Lucifer. I really do. So there's still that in me a little bit, you know? So, uh, and he'd be like, you know, you should eat to tofu. Do you know how long red meat stays in your digestive tract? And I always say, not long enough, because I'll be hungry tomorrow, bro. <laughs> and it was, I know I'm having this conversation with him, right? Because that was his kit. There's these guys, I call them mangelists. Like they think all the world's problems will be saved if men just acted more manly. And their idea of man is like drive an F, 250 diesel truck, run over, kill animals, eat them, go into the woods, do dangerous things. Like that's gonna solve the world's problems. Now, possibly because some of them will die, perish in those activities, but you just know that's what we're talking about. 
Every time Paul opens his mouth, at some point, Jesus comes out. I just love that. He could be trying to make a case to get out of jail. He doesn't. In his waiting period, he's like, man, this is just a great opportunity to share Jesus. And every time I'm gonna stand up in front of people, I am going to share about Jesus. Love that. So here's what Felix does. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, probably from his wife, she's Jewish, probably had that Drusilla, um, she knows. Put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He never comes down. The hot potato, Lysias had handed it off. He's back in Jerusalem, not my problem anymore. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Sunday, we looked at this text quickly. Um, Felix gets an F, right? Doesn't decide the case. He's a procrastinator, just kicks it down the, the, you know, the proverbial street for the next person to deal with. Uh, it's Mark Twain. Don't put off till tomorrow, which you can put off till the day after tomorrow. That's the classic procrastinator. That's what this guy is. And here's the damage. Here's the danger in that. This first time Paul talks about him, about faith in Jesus and righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And then he calls him back many times after that but it never says he's alarmed again. The problem with procrastinating about really important things that God puts on your life is this. Your heart changes. It like it grows a little calloused. Every time you say no to God, every time you're like, ah, not now, I'll deal with this later. I think there's like a layer that gets over your heart and it makes it just, you're less sensitive to his movement. It might be Hebrews chapter five that warns about that says to this group of people, you should be in graduate school right now, but instead you need to go back to elementary school. You need the milk. You can't take strong doctrine. You can't take meat right now because people that can, have a, have, that can handle meat handle it because of use, because they're using what God is putting into their life and because they're using it every time God speaks to them, they're sensitive to it. Be very wary of this. When God speaks, I think there's power in that moment to respond, to be changed, to be moved brilliantly. But when we say no, 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 then God just, okay, fine. Okay, fine. You'll reap the rewards of that procrastination, which is hardness of heart. Hebrews chapter five, danger to me. So happens to Felix. We know because of this succession of Felix to Portius Festus, this is 59 AD. So a lot of the, the book of Acts is dated from this right here, this transition, because we know it. Okay, right there, 59 AD. Um, just a little 
note for you. So then here's what happens. Portius Festus, next guy up. This guy is much more of a to-do guy. You'll see it. He just immediate. I'm not putting things off. We're gonna take care of it. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. New governor, very important guy, goes to Jerusalem. What's the first thing these guys wanna talk about? Paul. You're like, wow, man. We know there's a famine right then. Like they could use an economic stimulus package free or trade agreements, right? More bread, something. There, there's all kinds of like these problems, but they're so focused on their hatred of Paul, it makes him the most important thing. Do you know that's true of your own life? That something that you hate, you make that the most important thing in your life. And you're not able to see past it. It's like the rock in the road and you just keep concentrating on that. That's the danger of hatred. It elevates things that you should be able to ignore and move beyond. And then it just keeps bringing it up in your mind over and over and over again. And it makes it the most important time. And it's just a giant waste of time. Does hating ever make things better for you? If you've like spent your days, grinding your day, hating somebody, are you going to bed at night like, oh, shalom. Man, I feel so good. I feel so much better today. No, what does hatred do? makes you more hateful. Just hate, all it does is just amplify your hatred. This is a two-year grudge at this point. He's been in Caesarea for two years and they've been hating on him so much. It's elevated to this important status. They can't think of anything else except for getting and killing Paul. It leads them to be immoral, right? Bring him down here so on the way we can ambush him and murder him. Wow. Oh, dude, that's insane. Listen, Hatred is never ended by hate. It's only ended by love. The only way you get over hatred is love. That is Matthew chapter five, verses 44 and 45. Love your enemies. Bless those that persecute you, right? You don't get over hatred by hate. You get over it by love. And a lot of times we have to pray to God, put a love in my heart for that person that I wanna hate on, because it's killing me. So these guys, it's just killing them. Abraham Lincoln has one of the best quotes. After the Civil War, he let the South keep their guns. And so the people were saying, what are you doing? You're letting your enemy keep their guns. And this is his classic answer. He says this, do I not change my enemies into my friends? by allowing them to keep their guns. Such a brilliant concept. His goal was not punish them. His goal was, I wanna turn them into my friends. I want peace again. And hating is not gonna do that. These guys hate so much, elevates Paul, makes him way too important. So here's what happens. They come down. 
Verse six, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, this is how to do he is. Next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So, one of the big questions is verse nine. Festus asked Paul, would you go to Jerusalem? Why would he do that? Caesarea was the capital. It's the place where these things took place. It'd be like saying to uh, a politician, a a person in the Senate or a congressman or whoever, hey, let's take this thing out of Washington, D.C. and go to Richmond, Virginia. What? This is D.C. This is the capital. This is where these things take place. That's ridiculous. So the speculation is this. Festus knew about the plot to kill Paul. And he just decides, you know what's easier? If I just let him get killed. You wanna go to Jerusalem? And I'm okay with getting killed. I'll just write a letter. Hey, there's a little rebellion. Uh, uh, Instigator got killed in it. Um, I put it down. I fixed Felix's problem. Everything's good. And you could do that. That's what most people believe happened right there. So what does Paul do in that situation? Number one, Paul's not a doormat. I think sometimes Christians think we're supposed to be doormats for people. He is not a doormat, right? He stands up and says, bro, you're wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. This is the right place for me. Are you kidding me? We're to be different, no doubt. But being different does not mean being doormats. Number two, he knew the law of the land. He knew as a Roman citizen, I have the right, if I'm not being charged with murder, I have the right to appeal my case to Caesar. He knew the law. I think as Christians, we live in a society of law. We should know the law. And we should use the law as often as we can in this system that we've been given to protect ourselves and to promote Jesus in the kingdom. Completely within law. Like we should know, Paul knew the law and he used it. And then he was proactive. Who got Paul to Rome? Right? God said, chapter 23, verse 11, hey, Paul, I'm gonna get you to Rome. Right? Rome now pays for his ticket. You know, 
Festus is like, okay, I'm sending you to Rome. So you can say, no, Rome sent him to, to Rome. Or you could also say, Paul sent himself to Rome because he appealed to Caesar, right? Here's why I think that's really important. Paul knew the promise that God had given to him. I'm gonna get you to Rome. So did Paul sit around just twiddling his thumbs? Like, okay, I'm just waiting. It's been two years now. I'm just waiting. Send me to Rome. No, what does he do? He sees this opportunity, knows the law, knows what he can do. He's like, ha ha, I'm getting to Rome then. I'm appealing to Caesar. He jumped in, went through the door when it was opened. He actually kicked the door in. There's my opportunity, I'm getting to Rome. I know God promised it, but I am not gonna sit here and wait and twiddle my thumbs. I'm gonna be proactive looking for a way to see God's promise fulfilled. I think that's the way Christians are supposed to be. So on Sunday, I had these three guys, young men, strapping bachelors. And one of them said, okay, Matt, how do we find wives? I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I said, you're asking the wrong dude, man. Like I, I was never a ladies' man. I was like snowboarding and camping and fishing and just doing my thing, right? So I said, you're asking the wrong guy. He's like, okay, biblical principles. How do you find a wife? I said, oh, that's dangerous. I said, you can go to the Bible. So you can go to Isaac and Rebecca and that be your model. And so the model with Isaac and Rebecca is Isaac stays in his tent. His dad grabs a guy, a servant, sends him across the desert to go fetch a bride for Isaac. The guy goes across, finds this dashing gal named Rebecca, brings her back. Isaac's waiting in the tent the whole time. And then this man brings him, oh, here she is. Okay, there it is. So that's your model then. You gotta have your dad hire some dude to find a wife for you. You want that method? Okay. I said, but then Isaac and Rebecca, they have a son named Jacob. Jacob, bachelor, he's crossing the deserts. He shows up at this place and this very attractive woman named Rachel is there. He runs over to her, kisses her, pulls up this rock, waters her sheep. You can try that method. See a very attractive shepherdess, just run up and kiss her and see what, see what happens. In the Me Too movement, you'll be shot, right? And then run over and then shot again. All right, that could be your model. Or, or we can go to Esther. How did Esther find her man? Right? She's in this bizarre beauty pageant where hundreds of women are grabbed and then each of them have one night with the king. And the king is doing what he wants that one night until he finds the one that he likes. And it happens to be Esther. No one I know is saying, that's the biblical model to find a husband. <laughs> right? I say that because... The Bible is very powerful. And very often what we are doing is we're looking like for these formulas. How do, we, how do we find a formula when that's not at all the case? The key, and I told him this, the key is seek Jesus, your savior, who will save you from doing life wrong and help you do life right. And you're praying for wisdom the whole time. Jesus, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And he gave you a brain for a reason. Use it. Use it. Think. Paul has a brain. He uses it and he sees God's promise fulfilled for him. I think that's what you're seeing right there. Brilliant and right. Don't seek a formula. Yes, we should soak ourselves in scripture because it shapes us, but not for a formula. It's to shape us to say, I need to be seeking Jesus. That the Old Testament really is pointing you to, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Seek him. Seek his way. Ask for wisdom, no doubt, all the time, and use your brain. Okay.
So, Paul now, you're going, you're going. Festus has a problem. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king, this is Agrippa the second, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a man left by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had their own certain points of dispute with him about their religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. <laughs> Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, I, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Festus has a problem. Paul says, I wanna to go to Caesar. Okay, great. Why? Why am I sending this guy to Caesar? It's Caesar Nero, who's a nut job, who's not gonna want his time wasted. There's no charge, there's no accusation. There's nothing for Festus to write. So he's stuck now. He's in a rock and a hard place. I need to send him to Rome, but when I do, what am I gonna write? What charge am I gonna put? So in comes Agrippa. He is the great grandson of Herod, the king, knows, knows Israel, knows everything. And he's with his sister, Bernice who is also the sister of Drusilla from the previous chapter. And it appears from history that Agrippa II and his sister, Bernice, were in a relationship. So just a bizarre, bizarre family. So here's all this stuff you know, happening. And he's like, yeah, we wanna hear him. So the next day, I mean, it's so good. I could just stay here forever. <laughs> it's insanity. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, came with great pomp. So you got this brother and sister just heading into this amphitheater in Caesarea. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to Caesar, to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yeah. Captain Obvious, verse 27. <laughs> All right, so this is before technology. This is what people live for. Like, what else are you gonna do? 
It's in this incredible location. Caesarea is right on the, the Mediterranean Sea. They built this beautiful, beautiful amphitheater. And it says they came in with great pomp. It's the Greek word fantasia. So just Disney, you know, just total Disney right here. Just everything glitter you've got. Uh, the military comes in, just think World War II, just strutting in, people, uh, just unbelievable. The location, I've been there before. So it was 20 years ago, 1998. Um, kind of funny story. We're in this amphitheater overlooking the ocean. Brilliant. The acoustics there are phenomenal. They say someone can stand on that stage. We actually sent somebody down there to stand on the stage, talk in a normal voice. And there's like, you could see, I don't know, eight, 10,000 people in this amphitheater. Anyone can hear. Like it's that brilliant of design. So we're there with this little group with John Corson. It was a trip to Israel. And there's these walkways, like there's 10 seating rows and then a walkway and 10 seating rows and a walkway. So we're up in the seats. John Corson is like standing on the walkway and he's teaching this text right here. He's teaching it. And if you know John, he's an intense teacher. He does not like any distraction. Like it is focus, pay attention. We're teaching God's word, which is a great attribute. So as we're, we're all listening and stuff, this group comes in and they're way, it's this long, you know, it's gotta be a couple hundred feet long. And they come in and you can see them, they're walking on the walkway that John is teaching on. And he's just, he's just, he's just grabbing fifth gear right now. So he's going and, and, they're, and everyone's kind of watching and they're filing in and they've all got like these floppy sun hats on and here they come, probably 50, a whole busload, 50 of them. And they're walking. Da -dun, da -dun. And you can see John like glance over like they're not going to. They would not, no, they are. They just started walking right in front. Just, and he's like, what? And then, and then he made this realization and we all made the realization like at the same time. And how do I say this nicely? Um, they were people that would normally ride a short bus, okay? So they were that, and so he's like, ah. oh. And you just see him do this, okay? And then I'm with like Aaron Freilich and Roman Watson and this guy named Eric Cartier. We just could not stop laughing. It's the funniest thing. So that's my Caesarea story. I'm sticking to it. It's so funny. <laughs> so here it is, this beautiful place, all this pomp, all this energy, all these people, like, it's the red carpet, man. When, these, when they're marching in, people are like, who is that? Oh, that's Agrippa. And, and, oh, that's Bernice. And who's the fat guy behind them? Oh, that's the new governor, Porcius Festus. Like, it's a big deal. This is everything. Packed out. Pomp. Military. Power. They all sit down. And I can just imagine in my mind, there's a little side door. Out comes this chained, tiny, hook-nosed, bald, bow-legged, squeaky-voiced man named Paul. <laughs> and he's the main attraction. And so he comes out and you just got all this, just this crazy stuff. Like, it's just amazing to me how God orchestrates events. And back then, Paul was a nobody. Now who's known? Right? I have to explain to you who Porcius Festus is and Felix and Bernice and Drusilla. They were the known people, man. They were top 10. Now nobody even knows them. Paul's a known man. It's like one of those cases where the, you just hear Jesus' words. The first will be last and the last will be first. I think in the kingdom, we are gonna be so shocked at who we thought was so great and who's actually first. I think it's gonna be shocking. I just hope I can see my wife in line. Like she's one of her. 
right? It's gonna be a reversal, I'm telling you. I get a lot of accolades, I get it now. A lot of people that didn't get it here, you're gonna be huge in eternity, right? So just two points and then I'm done. Number one, and I mentioned this, um, Paul uses his brain. Christians, use your brain. Use your brains. Has anyone in here ever done a paint by the numbers? Right? One is blue, two is red. Did you keep it? Like, this is a masterpiece, man. Are the museums like, there's a Louvre saying, can we get that from you? Was, wow. No. And yet so many people want the Christian life to be paint by the numbers. Lord, just tell me what color to put right here. No. God doesn't want to do that. God's trying to raise royalty. He's trying to raise royalty. Paul used his brain. Here's an opportunity. God made this promise. I'm kicking that door down. I'm doing it. Please use your brain. Pray for wisdom, totally, and go for it. Don't be paralyzed. Don't be, it's not paint by the numbers. God wants a masterpiece, and it's never gonna be paint by the numbers, okay? And what you see in the Bible is this, like there are times that God says, Exodus 14, 14, I'm gonna fight for you, stand still. But then to that same group of people, Joshua 1, 6, he goes, get in the land, everywhere your foot steps, you own that land. Go in and take possession of it, right? Same group of people, it's a different situation. And they have to pray for wisdom. What are we supposed to do here? Do we wait or do we walk around and take the land? And that's where wisdom comes in. Using our brains. Use your brains. Number two, Paul's all about the resurrection, right? The key to this whole thing is verse 21 of chapter 24. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The resurrection is it. Millions, I don't know if millions, hundreds of thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. Common, common, common. One, and only one, three days later, walked out of the grave. The first fruits of new creation, the first fruits of the new heavens, the first fruits of what God has in store for all of us is the resurrection. So I was involved with a, Memorial service on Saturday. 26-year-old young man, full of life, had an addiction, got a hold of a tainted heroin, had fentanyl probably in it, OD'd and died. Brutal, just heartbreaking. All these 25, 26, 27-year-old young men who are saying, what's up, Matt? What's up? I always point. Resurrection, man. God did not destine us. The reason why we're all here right here, the reason why we're in this memorial service right now is because each of us knows this is not the way we're designed to live. That we should never say goodbye. That we're designed to live in eternity, in eternal community with God in a beautiful spot. And what Revelation 21 and 22 says is this, that's where you're headed. It's called the garden city of New Jerusalem. That's our hope. Our hope is one day we're put in a place where we were dis designed to live eternally, never saying goodnight, never saying goodbye, never saying, hey, I don't have enough time. All those things that are weird now that you feel like they shouldn't be this way, they're gone. We're fulfilled and we rule with our king for eternity. That's why Paul says this. That's our hope. So when we eat and drink today, part of it is 
1 Corinthians 11, you do this until I return. It's, an, in, it's a thing that we do in anticipation of the coming kingdom. So communion to me is not self-reflection and how bad of a sinner I am. It's remembering Jesus, what he's done for us and what he's gonna do for us. Both of those things. And both of those things should put a smile on your face. Man, I've been redeemed and cleansed and given a spirit and I have an eternal destiny with him where I'll be in community the way I was designed to, where there'll be no more night and no more sadness and no more drug addiction and no more cancer. Oh, it's celebration. So Jesus today, when we take the cup and we take the bread, may hope be reignited in our hearts. The hope that you save us. Save us from our broken, evil, perplexing selves. That you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That you've created in us new hearts, giving to us your spirit, writing your will upon our hearts that we can use our brains, that you, through scripture, through the saints, through your spirit, are shaping us to know how to do life right. And that's our hope. And our hope is that one day you'll whisper into our ear, let's get out of here. Let's go home. Let's go home.